On the night of January 8, 1966, the Grateful Dead headlined an acid test at San Francisco's Fillmore Auditorium. The event was part of a burgeoning subculture that, at the time, was so novel it didn't even have a name. It was a combination of post-beatniks, folk musicians, pre-hippies, and avant-garde artists. Whatever their background, they all believed in the mind-expanding properties of LSD. Hundreds of microphones had been set up around the hall to record ambient noise, along with speakers and tape recorders. The sound from the microphones was filtered through the tape recorders and played on a delay through the speakers, creating a cacophony of disembodied, overlapping sounds that somehow fit right in with the environment. Around 2 a.m., bewildered police officers arrived to shut down the event, completely mystified by what they saw. To them, it seemed like a bunch of young rascals acting like freaks. But the event was far more significant. In many ways, it was the defining moment of the psychedelic era in San Francisco. And beneath the magical surface, there was controversy, mystery, and a whole lot of drugs. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And this is the first episode of ParCast's two-part special on the Grateful Dead, presented by Conspiracy Theories. The 60s are remembered as a time of peace and love, and nobody exemplifies that better than the Grateful Dead, the psychedelic band at the forefront of the counterculture revolution. But the era had a dark underbelly. One where the drugs weren't so good, the vibes weren't so peaceful, and conspiracy theories abounded. This week, we're covering the band's origins at the birth of the counterculture movement and the conspiracy theories about their role in spreading LSD. We'll also explore the questions surrounding the Altamont Music Festival, where the Grateful Dead were supposed to open for the Rolling Stones. Some say the event was actually a coordinated effort by law enforcement to cause chaos and discredit the hippie movement, and that the dead may have been in on the plan. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, 
and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In the mid-1960s, Palo Alto, California, wasn't exactly a hotbed of culture and creativity. Back then, it was just a sleepy suburb about 45 minutes from San Francisco. Today, it's home to many of the world's most profitable tech corporations, so art and creativity still haven't flourished. But in 1964, a group of musicians tried to shake up the quiet city. A young man named Jerry Garcia teamed up with Ron Pigpen McKernan, Bob Weir, and a few other musicians to form a folk group called Mother McRee's Uptown Jug Champions. At the time, most of the bandmates were still teenagers, ones with a shared reverence for the beat writers of the 1950s, a wide range of music, and smoking marijuana. Though they all contributed to the ethos and spirit of the burgeoning folk group, Jerry Garcia was the true leader. He was the one who led their spontaneous road trips up and down the California coast. He encouraged the other members to practice for hours on end, just like he did. Garcia was obsessed with bluegrass music. He would spend entire days picking his banjo and trying to sound like his hero, Earl Scruggs. Soon, the practice paid off, and the band began booking gigs. At first, Garcia's goal was to stay as true to the form of bluegrass as possible. But even though he was a fantastic banjo player, he soon found the style limiting and unsatisfying. Sometime in 1965, he picked up an electric guitar and changed not only the band's name, but their entire musical direction. The Warlocks, as they were now called, began experimenting with a combination of genres and sounds while searching for their own. Their music combined Garcia's love of country, folk, and bluegrass with Pigpen's love of the blues and Bob Weir's interest in jazz and classical. Soon, an avant-garde classical composer named Phil Lesh joined the group to play bass. Not long after that, they began booking gigs around the San Francisco Bay Area, often playing two or three sets every night of the week. But the Warlocks didn't truly find their identity until they were introduced to the novelist Ken Kesey, and Kesey's drug of choice, LSD. Although LSD would usher in something of a revolution in the 1960s, the drug had already been in use in various capacities for almost two decades. It was first synthesized in 1938 by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman. But it wasn't until five years later, when he accidentally ingested the drug, that he became aware of its psychedelic properties. The most common experiences include more intense sensory perception, a distorted sense of time and space, and a distorted body image. But more importantly, it produces a general sense of euphoria, heightened analytical and creative thinking, and a sensation of existential truth. 
With those properties in mind, in 1947, Hoffman's laboratory began distributing LSD as a treatment for, among other things, schizophrenia, criminal behavior, and alcoholism. A short time later, the CIA initiated a top-secret program known as MKUltra. The agency was interested in using LSD on prisoners to elicit confessions and weaken their mental resolve. To that end, they administered the drug to mostly unsuspecting patients to study its effects. But LSD was used for a far less sinister purpose among clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. In fact, in the 1950s, actor Cary Grant became one of the drug's leading proponents after using it during sessions with his therapist. Describing his experience with LSD, Grant claimed, When I broke through, I felt an immeasurably beneficial cleansing of so many needless fears and guilts. I lost all the tension that I'd been crippling myself with. First, I thought of all those wasted years. Second, I said, Oh my God, the humanity, please come in. By the time the original patent for LSD expired in 1963, many notable figures were passionate advocates for the drug, including Harvard professor Timothy Leary and author Aldous Huxley. They became the academic leaders of the burgeoning LSD revolution. But there was another group that played just as strong a role in the revolution, one born from the beat movement of the 1950s, the Merry Pranksters. Ken Kesey, author of the celebrated novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, was the group's de facto leader. He had taken part in the MKUltra acid studies and saw the potential for the drug outside of clinical settings. To spread the word about LSD, Kesey organized the first ever acid test in December 1965 at a small gathering in Northern California although the event was less of an acid test and more of an acid party. Everyone took the same amount of LSD among a like-minded group of people. They laughed, they cried, they expanded their collective consciousness. The event was so successful that the acid tests became a regular happening, attracting more and more participants. Eventually, the Warlocks became the house band for the events, They soon changed their name to the Grateful Dead. Though the Grateful Dead were at the forefront of the counterculture revolution, they couldn't have anticipated what the movement would become in only a few short years. This was a time when young people were seeking more from life than just a job and a family. They wanted freedom, happiness, love, and sex. Some people didn't know what they were searching for, just that they were searching. But soon, thousands upon thousands of like-minded people began making their way to San Francisco, specifically the Haight-Ashbury district. By 1967, San Francisco was the mecca of the counterculture movement. In January of that year, more than 20,000 people attended the first human be-in at Golden Gate Park. This event also happened to be the place where Timothy Leary debuted his new mantra, Turn on, tune in, drop out, which encouraged the use of LSD and the rejection of straight society. In the summer of 1967, which came to be known as the Summer of Love, 
It's estimated that 75,000 young people flocked to the Haight-Ashbury district. Naturally, this attracted a great deal of media attention, which only increased the movement's popularity. And while the collective consciousness was changing, so too was the music. Before dropping acid, the Grateful Dead had been blending several musical genres into their work, but each member of the band was still more or less devoted to a specific style. But after they began taking acid, they achieved a sort of collective mindset. No one remained attached to any specific genre. Instead, they blended all the styles into something completely new. And more importantly, they all began to listen to each other as musicians. They were all on the same wavelength. In this sense, the music took on a much more freeform, improvisational style that wasn't constrained by any sort of musical rules or tradition. A perfect fit for the counterculture movement. The Dead's popularity soon outgrew San Francisco, and as they took their act across the United States, they made thousands of new fans wherever they played. But their fame also drew attention from the people who'd pioneered LSD in the first place, the U.S. government. Coming up, the Grateful Dead enter the crosshairs of the FBI and DEA. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism and more and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches, who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. 1967 was the heyday of the hippie movement in San Francisco, a time when thousands of like-minded, idealistic young people converged upon the city to find peace, love, and hope. And, of course, drugs. And while the movement may have seemed innocent, there was one specific group that felt otherwise, the FBI. For years, under the agency's notoriously conservative director, J. Edgar Hoover, 
the FBI had spied on private citizens that were deemed a threat to national security. Of course, their definition of a threat ranged from bootleggers to suspected communists to gay people to leaders of the civil rights movement. In 1956, the FBI initiated a secret surveillance and disruption program called COINTELPRO to infiltrate and undermine groups it considered subversive. They kept secret files on people like Martin Luther King, Helen Keller, Albert Einstein, Muhammad Ali, and even Frank Sinatra, all public figures whom they feared could inspire the populace and upset the status quo. The FBI spied on nearly every prominent civil rights leader and was even suspected of involvement in the murders of Malcolm X and Fred Hampton. Much to the FBI's chagrin, the civil rights movement was still a success and one that paved the way for other like-minded movements. First, there was the free speech movement at the University of California, Berkeley, in which students occupied various buildings to protest the campus's ban on political activity. The free speech movement stood in solidarity with the civil rights movement and with the anti-Vietnam War protests that were sweeping the nation. And of course, it coincided with the rise of the hippie movement in nearby San Francisco. Eventually, all of these movements coalesced to form a countercultural revolution. Young people were gathering in droves to stand up to authority, traditional values, and the government. Naturally, this was the FBI's worst nightmare. The FBI was determined to stop the countercultural movement in its tracks. And according to heavily redacted files, they believed that the Grateful Dead were essentially the Martin Luther Kings of LSD, distributing the drug in bulk at their shows. Part of the FBI file reads, LSD originates from San Francisco, California, through a renowned rock group known as Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead is well known to DEA San Francisco. It's a no-brainer that the Grateful Dead and their fans were using LSD. But the FBI seems to have believed that the bandmates were actually the ones making and distributing the drugs to the thousands of acid enthusiasts in the city. As ridiculous as that sounds, the theory has at least a grain of truth. Because at the time, almost all of the LSD in local circulation came from a single source, Owsley Stanley. Stanley could be described as a renaissance man. He was born into a prominent political family from Kentucky, and for a time it seemed he might also be destined for a career in politics. Instead, he dropped out of college and joined the Air Force, where he served as an electronics specialist. Around 1965, he crossed paths with the Grateful Dead and became the band's sound engineer. Stanley was the mind behind the Dead's innovative technical setup. At the time, many bands simply performed with whatever muddled, underpowered sound system came with the venue. Everyone plugged their instruments into the same amplifiers, and people in the back rows couldn't hear anything. Stanley came up with the idea of creating an entire wall of loudspeakers on stage to project the band's sound into the audience. The revolutionary setup projected clean and clear audio in any sized venue. Stanley was also one of the first engineers to record live shows. 
This allowed the dead to study the tapes and improve their future performances. But beyond his capacity as an engineer, Stanley had another job, so to speak. A couple years before Stanley linked up with the Grateful Dead, he enrolled at UC Berkeley. He only lasted a semester, but he stuck around in Berkeley to take part in the city's psychedelic drug scene. And that's where he discovered his true calling. LSD was still legal at the time, and soon Stanley began synthesizing his own acid in a small makeshift laboratory. By 1965, he had manufactured so much that he became the principal supplier for Ken Kesey's acid tests and basically everyone else doing the drug in the Bay Area. For the next couple years, LSD was almost as popular and ubiquitous as marijuana. At Grateful Dead shows, everyone was on LSD, even the band. Jerry Garcia certainly never made any secret of his love for LSD. Reflecting back on the acid tests, he said, We were celebrating life. For us, psychedelics were what we'd always been looking for. Drugs were part of that continuous search for the explosion, the realization of something. Alas, the government didn't share Garcia's rosy view. In fact, LSD was criminalized in California in 1966. Not long after that, narcotics agents busted Stanley for creating and distributing the drug in 1967. While he was out on bail, he resumed his engineering duties with the Grateful Dead until he and they were busted for drugs in New Orleans in 1970. After doing time for that bust, Stanley spent a few more years as the Dead's principal sound man before eventually leaving in the mid-1970s. When he died in 2011, an obituary in the Wall Street Journal claimed that Owsley Stanley made and supplied the LSD that fueled acid rock and California's hallucinogenic culture in the 1960s. That same obituary suggests he may have distributed anywhere from thousands to millions of doses. With that in mind, the FBI was right. A huge amount of LSD did originate from the Grateful Dead. Sure, Owsley Stanley wasn't technically a member of the band in as much as he didn't play an instrument, but he did play an integral part in the band's day-to-day existence. The Grateful Dead were certainly aware that LSD was being distributed at their shows and that their audio engineer was more or less the acid guru of the United States. And even if the bandmates weren't directly involved in the drug's distribution, they were definitely responsible for making it popular. After all, they basically created the style of music that came to be known as acid rock. Of course, there were other players who physically distributed major quantities of LSD, and other figures like the Merry Pranksters who turned the dead onto acid in the first place. But while the dead may not have been solely responsible for the LSD revolution, they still played a big enough part to make them a target for the U.S. government. And more than 50 years later, there are still questions about how far the government went on their quest to take them down. Next, we'll explore the conspiracy theories surrounding the infamous free concert at the Altamont Speedway. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1969, the Grateful Dead were invited to play at Woodstock, which they did, badly. Like many of the bands there, they were probably too high to play a decent set, and the surviving audio attests to that. After that overwhelmingly negative experience, the band agreed to open for the Rolling Stones later that year. At the time, the Stones had been dogged by criticism that they overcharged for concert tickets and only cared about money. So, in an effort to rehabilitate their image, they decided to play a free concert in Golden Gate Park for however many people chose to attend. And since it was in San Francisco, the Grateful Dead would be along for the ride. Unfortunately, the city of San Francisco decided that they didn't want to be on the hook for an event that might draw hundreds of thousands of people. The powers that be refused to issue a permit. Short of options, the concert organizers landed on a new venue, the Altamont Speedway Racetrack. It was located an hour east of San Francisco, virtually in the middle of nowhere. Altamont was supposed to be Woodstock West, but unlike Woodstock, bad vibes plagued the Altamont Festival from the start. The racetrack wasn't equipped with any infrastructure, there was no stage, no seating, no restrooms, and no parking lot, which isn't what you want in anticipation of 300,000 people arriving all at once. The crew rushed in to set up the stage and audio components in the middle of the night under freezing temperatures. The next morning, as people began to arrive, it was still cold, overcast, and gloomy. Not the kind of weather that lends itself to a concert on the green. Perhaps the only similarity to Woodstock was the fact that there was standstill traffic leading into the festival grounds, which meant that people had to park miles away and walk. One attendee drowned in an irrigation canal on his way to the grounds. Things didn't get much better from there. By far, the worst decision the organizers made was to hire the Oakland charter of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang as security. The Angels had been allies of the early acid tests and counterculture in the Bay Area. Many of the bikers even took acid themselves. Although even under the influence of LSD, the biker gang was still known for violence and destruction. But none of the bands, especially the Rolling Stones, wanted police officers in charge of security. So, foolishly, the manager of the Grateful Dead offered the Hells Angels $500 worth of beer to keep order at Altamont. As it turned out, adding a gang of quarrelsome bikers into the mix wasn't the best way to keep the peace. When Santana, the first band of the afternoon, began their set, a fight broke out almost immediately. It's unclear if the Hells Angels started the fighting or if they jumped in to stop it, but either way, it didn't bode well for the rest of the event. After Santana, Jefferson Airplane took the stage, and yet another fight broke out between the Angels and the fans. 
Marty Ballin, the band's co-lead singer, actually jumped off stage to intervene. Unfortunately, he was swiftly knocked unconscious by one of the bikers. As Jefferson Airplane continued their set, the Grateful Dead arrived by helicopter. When they touched down, the band members learned that the Hells Angels had just beaten up Marty Ballin. After seeing the highly charged atmosphere, the Grateful Dead almost immediately decided not to play. The peace-loving band simply couldn't support an event that had clearly spiraled out of control. Drummer Mickey Hart later explained, quote, Grateful Dead music cannot happen in a situation like that. We just said, this isn't a place for us. With the dead off the bill, the Flying Burrito Brothers and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young played their respective sets before the Rolling Stones took the stage around sundown. By then, the Hells Angels had spent an entire afternoon drinking beer and fighting, and attendees' acid trips were peaking. The Rolling Stones' music certainly didn't help the dark, sinister energy coursing through the crowd. The band was at the height of its satanic period, flirting with themes of darkness, death, and anti-authoritarianism. Before they began their set, Mick Jagger urged the crowd to be cool and not push around. Unfortunately, few heeded his advice. As the band launched into Sympathy for the Devil, of all songs, a Hells Angels motorcycle was knocked over right below the stage. Naturally, this resulted in chaos, shoving, and a lot of confusion. Just as soon as they'd begun, the Stones were forced to stop their set. After a few minutes of panic and fighting, Mick Jagger pleaded with the crowd to cool out. But as soon as the band resumed playing, Another fight broke out near the stage. Even though Mick Jagger tried to dance his way through the madness, eventually he had to stop again. After a short break, during which doctors were summoned, most people thought the band would call off the rest of the show. Instead, they chose to go on. The band launched into Under My Thumb, and for a little while, things calmed down. Then, at the foot of the stage... A young man named Meredith Hunter pulled a handgun from his waistband and waved it in the air. The crowd panicked and moved away, except for one Hell's Angel named Alan Passaro, who grabbed a knife and ran toward Hunter, stabbing him several times. Almost immediately, other Hell's Angels pounced on Hunter, grabbing his gun, kicking him, and hitting him with the lid of a trash can. Once again, the stones stopped their set, Medical personnel were summoned, and Keith Richards even scolded the Angels from on stage. The band plowed through the rest of their set, which miraculously was devoid of any more violence. The musicians didn't realize that not far from the stage, Meredith Hunter was lying dead. The minute the Rolling Stones finished their last song, they hopped in a helicopter and headed straight to the airport, no doubt wondering how everything could have gone so horribly wrong. That question soon gave birth to conspiracy theories. Sam Cutler, the tour organizer for the Grateful Dead and Rolling Stones, claimed in his autobiography that law enforcement intentionally spread bad drugs at the concert and possibly sent Meredith Hunter there to cause mayhem. As we discussed earlier, 
The FBI, especially through COINTELPRO, sought to undermine and discredit anyone it deemed a threat to the status quo. The agency had files on musicians, including the Grateful Dead. Since this concert was planned to be a major event, deemed Woodstock West, it would have been the perfect place to cause chaos for the counterculture movement. Even the physical location of the concert was a powder keg waiting to explode. Altamont was well east of San Francisco, in an area that was considered country, or as author Joel Selvin put it, redneck. As such, it attracted a different crowd than a place like Golden Gate Park, a crowd that was more prone to beer drinking and fighting than psychedelics and love. As for the crowd that was there for the psychedelics, the FBI would have had no trouble distributing bad drugs to kill the vibe. After all, the government knew all about LSD and its effects thanks to Project MKUltra. At Woodstock, countless attendees had bad trips after taking the infamous brown acid that was circulating. There's no evidence that law enforcement was involved in that, but it could have given them the idea to try something similar at Altamont. The FBI also had a history of using undercover agents to infiltrate organizations, so it's not inconceivable that Meredith Hunter could have been a plant. According to this theory, Hunter's role was to stir up trouble with the Hells Angels. The Angels, by and large, were known for having racist members. Not only was Hunter black, but he attended the show with his white girlfriend, something that would obviously upset prejudiced bikers. According to a 2019 expose in the Washington Post, multiple eyewitnesses saw the Angels hassling Hunter, both verbally and physically, throughout the afternoon. According to Hunter's girlfriend, he had actually been punched by a Hell's Angel just before he reached for his gun. Oddly, no one knows exactly what Meredith Hunter was doing with the gun. His girlfriend claimed he was always calm and rarely got into fights, but that he carried a gun for protection. However, others have wondered if self-defense wasn't Hunter's only motive. Mickey Hart, one of the drummers for the Grateful Dead, claimed Hunter was headed right toward Mick with his gun pointed. As we mentioned earlier, the FBI was suspected of involvement in several assassinations, including the murders of Malcolm X and Fred Hampton. Theoretically speaking, killing Mick Jagger or any of the musicians in attendance could have served the FBI's interests in a similar way. But that raises another troubling question. Why didn't the Grateful Dead perform that day? Could they have known that something nefarious was afoot? and that stepping on stage would be risking their lives? This would mean that the Grateful Dead was in cahoots with the FBI, which seems incredibly unlikely, since the agency was spying on the Grateful Dead and believed them to be responsible for the LSD movement. If anything, the dead would more likely be a target of a secret FBI operation, not a co-conspirator. Also, we know that the band only decided not to play once they arrived at the show after they learned about the chaos. And given how volatile the crowd was, anyone would have sensed the danger there. While Sam Cutler's theory certainly makes sense, it seems more likely that this chaos was due to a sheer lack of planning rather than any sinister plot by law enforcement. 
The event was haphazard and unsafe from the very beginning. Let's not forget that the angels, the ones in charge of keeping the peace, had zero interest in providing security. They seemed to just want to drink and do drugs. In a radio interview the day after the event, founding member Sonny Barger even said, I ain't no cop. I ain't never going to pretend to be a cop. Mick Jagger used us for dupes. When you put drunken bikers in a position of authority, you can't be surprised if they abuse it, especially when the entire crowd they're supervising is on drugs. In fact, Meredith Hunter's autopsy revealed that there was methamphetamine in his system, which could explain why he pulled a gun on the Hell's Angels. All things considered, the bottom line is that law enforcement didn't have to sabotage Altamont. It was a recipe for disaster from the get-go. But ultimately, whether or not it was the work of law enforcement, the chaos at Altamont was the death knell of the 1960s. The tragic event did more to destroy the peace and love counterculture than practically anything else. By this point, the hippie movement was already past its peak. The 70s were fast approaching. The culture, the music, and the drugs were moving on. The Grateful Dead would be one of the few bands of the 60s to survive the transition. And once again, their concerts were ground zero for a new drug of choice. Nitrous Oxide. Thanks for tuning in. In the next episode, we'll explore the rise of the Nitrous Mafia, the secretive group that controls the laughing gas market at Grateful Dead shows. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.